What's up, guys? Welcome back to another Daily Bible Reading Snapshot podcast. And as we start the eighth week of our Bible reading, just note that we have covered the first book of the New Testament already, the book of Matthew. We've covered the book of Genesis, the book of Exodus, and the book of Leviticus. And we start the book of Numbers this week. So you're done with four of some of the most important books of the Bible. So I encourage you, as you read, look back at the progress that you've made. Although it might not be encouraging if you got a little thin line Bible, it looks like it's not been that much of the Bible, just a little bit. But those are some of the most significant portions of the Bible that you've read this year. And hopefully God has grown you as you've given yourself to this habit of understanding what he says. And ultimately, this is where our life comes from. It comes from digging into the word and it comes from learning from what God says. So as we dig into the book of Numbers, some people get stuck in the first couple chapters because it's all a bunch of numbers, and that's where we get the book of Numbers' name. It's it's Numbers. It's the people of Israel, numbered. We get the final number of over 600,000 men who are ready to go into the land and to take it for God. Now, the problem is, the story of Numbers is that they're not going to do that. But at least how it's set up at the beginning is, hey, this is how many people could have gone into the land at the beginning. So as you read all the names and all the people and all the tribes— there might be a danger for you to say, well, this doesn't matter to me because I'm not living at this time and I don't really even recognize many of these names. Why is this important? Well, take it like this. As you read, you're going to see a bunch of people who had all of God's gifts and promises, a group of people that was ready and it seemed like willing to obey God. But when the test came, these people failed with two exceptions, Caleb and Joshua, which we'll talk about later. But the whole generation decided, yeah, we've seen what God has done. We've seen his salvation, but we don't want to obey God and we don't want to trust him. So this is really a tragic book. It's really a book all about the failure of God's people in the wilderness generation. So I said it's a storybook, and that's because once you get past chapter 10, once you get into chapter 11, now you've got a bunch of story elements. You're back to narrative. And remember, we said in Exodus 19 that when the people of Israel got to Mount Sinai, they would stay there for a book and a half. I said they'd stay there for the half of the book of Exodus, and they would stay there for the entire book of Leviticus. So there's a lot of rules that God gave at that time period. Now the narrative picks back up, and then we're going to go quickly through the next 40 years which serve as the 40 years of judgment for these people for the mistakes that they made. And they're more than mistakes. I shouldn't even call them mistakes. They are willful acts of disobedience in the light of all of God's salvation, all of his signs and wonders that he did in Egypt and in the wilderness. These people did not do what God wanted them to do. So uh, like I said, in chapter 11, the narrative will pick up. You'll see them complaining with a strong craving, it says, and they said, we used to have fish and meat and cucumbers in Egypt, but but now we don't have the same food that we had. We just have this manna. And so interesting, so like human beings to take all of God's gifts that they're getting right now and to complain about God's gifts. That's a real good warning for us. If you're someone who's complaining about the good things God has given you, which, you know, I don't mean to single you out. We all do that from time to time. If we're doing that, we're like these Israelites. It's wrong. God's the one that provides our daily bread, just like he provided manna for them. And we shouldn't be people who are complaining about God's gifts, but it's so common. It's so easy to do when we get our cravings and our desires and we put them too highly, it becomes an issue. I mean, we see that even in the book of James chapter four, I think about how 
James tells those Christians, why is there quarrels? Why is there fights among you Christians? It's because you want something and you don't get it. It's because of all these unmet desires. And then he even turns them to prayer in that chapter in James 4. But uh, back here in Numbers, one of the things that we're going to see is that God will take all the complaints and then judge these individual groups of people. So first the people complain about food, and then God sends a plague. Then Miriam and Aaron, they complain about Moses' wife, which is interesting. It's like, why do they complain about his wife? Well, it says in the text that he took a Cushite wife. So some scholars think they're talking about Zipporah, his first wife, or maybe he took another wife after Zipporah died because either one of them would qualify for being a Cushite because sometimes Midian and Cushite is um, used interchangeably in the Bible. And scholars have noted the irony in this story because they complain about this dark-skinned woman, and maybe it was a complaint because she didn't look like them. But then what God does is he judges Miriam, who looks like the rest of those Israelites, with striking her with a disease that made her skin white. And it was a deadly disease. It was leprosy. And God strikes her with leprosy. And it's not until Moses intercedes for her and says, God, please forgive her, save her, heal her. And God said, well, you know, if someone's shamed for something, at least they're put out of the camp for seven days. So she deserves at least seven days to be put away for complaining against God's leader. And that's what happens. But just ironic, and it shouldn't be unexpected, but this is how God's judgment often works. It The, the crime fits the punishment, right? So she complains about some wife of Moses being dark-skinned and, and not like her. And then God says, well, you're not even going to look like you anymore. You're going to be getting a disease where now you got to get put out of the camp. You wanted to put her out of the camp. Now you're going to be put out of the camp. So with God's judgment, there is true justice. And then after that, the Israelites decide that they want to complain in a bigger way because in chapter 13 and 14, Moses sends spies into the land. And this is the real turning point for this entire generation. You could really summarize the whole problem with this Israelite generation started in Numbers 13 and 14. And contained in those two chapters is the whole turning point of the book, right? Things are going well. Things are seeming to go well. They're going to take the land. And then all of a sudden, after chapter 14, God says, nope, you're not even allowed to take the land anymore. So what happens? Moses sends spies into the land, and they're supposed to look at it and supposed to say, great, what's the game plan? How are we going to take this land? Tell us about the people. Tell us about the crops. Tell us about the cities, all that stuff. And then they come back, and 10 out of the 12 spies are saying, no, these are too big. People are too big. The, 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 the towns are too scary. There's no way that we can do this. We should just, like, wait this out somehow. The problem was that was in direct opposition to God's clear commandments. So in chapter 14, the Lord said to Moses about this. He says, how long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? That's a great verse. That's Numbers 14, 11, where God says to Moses, these people are despising me. They are looking down on me and they are not believing what I can do, even though I've proved it time and time again. I just wonder how often God thinks that about his people. How long? Will they despise me and not believe my words and not believe my promises, right? If you're a Christian, that's something that should never be true of you. You should never be a person who disbelieves God's promises, but so often in our Christian lives, that does happen. We don't take God at his word. We're told to obey. We're told to have good relationships with our spouse or with our kids, and we see God's clear commandments, and we say, 
yeah, I don't know if I want to do that. I'm going to do things my own way. And what does God say? I mean, this is a great perspective from God. How long will these people despise me? Have I not proved to them that my word is true? Have I not proved that I have their best interest at heart? I can imagine God saying that about uh, many of us when we decide to not obey God's word. So he says all this stuff. And then in uh, verse 20, so later on in this chapter, the Lord said, I've pardoned them according to your word because Moses intercedes for them and says, uh, yeah, you got to keep coming with us, God. Don't don't forsake your people. So he says, okay, I've forgiven this nation, but truly as I live, this is verse 21, truly as I live, and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and yet have put me to the test these 10 times and have not obeyed my voice, shall see the land that I swore to give their fathers. So a part of the accountability that these people have is the fact that they saw God's glory. They saw the pillar of fire. They saw the pillar of a cloud. They saw the works done on Mount Sinai. They saw the parting of the Red Sea, and they saw the the hail and the earthquakes, and they saw all of it, but they did not trust God when the time came for them to act and obey. So that's the key. But then he says, but my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring him into the land into which he went, and his descendants shall possess it. Later on in that text, he says, not one of these people of this generation shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell except for Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. So those were the two spies who actually believed God and said, no, we can take this land. And then he says in verse 31, this is God still speaking, this, but your little ones, so all the children amongst these wilderness generation people, who you said would become a prey. So you didn't believe God. You said that these kids, we can't go because of the kids, right? Blaming the kids is what a lot of parents do. They say, I don't want to do what God says because of, you know, my kids. I don't want that to happen. And he says, well, because you didn't believe your kids who you said would be a prey, I will bring them in and I'll give them the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead body shall fall in the wilderness and your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness 40 years and shall suffer for your faithlessness. So it's like these kids should have grown up in these cities. Like the way that the Israelites were supposed to take the land, they're supposed to go into these cities and inhabit them. They're only supposed to destroy like a couple of cities. And later on in the book of Joshua, we'll see that. Some people think that the Israelites came and just decimated every piece of architecture. Like that's not what God had them do. Only in a couple of cities, God did that. But they were supposed to go and move into these cities that were already built, into houses that were already built, into crops that were already there. And they were supposed to just take over this land and have it purified and be living righteously. These kids were supposed to grow up in the land. And instead... They grow up in the wilderness. And he says, okay, that's because of your faithlessness. Your kids are going to suffer for your sins, but ultimately they are going to inherit the blessings that you forfeited because you did not believe in God. So he says these people for 40 years will be wandering the wilderness a year for each day, and you shall bear the iniquity 40 years, and you shall know my displeasure. So they spied out the land for 40 days, and God said, great. For every day of unbelief, I'm going to give you a year of judgment, a year of wandering around in the wilderness. So uh, this second generation who came after these Israelites, the ones who were just children at that point, they are the Deuteronomy generation, the Joshua generation, the people who get God's commandments from Moses at the very end, his summary statement, which is the book of Deuteronomy. 
And then they're the people who go fight with Joshua and take the land. And God gives them success. And the only two people that made it out of the land of Egypt and into the land of promise are Caleb and Joshua because they believed God. And some people ask, well, what happened to the other 10 spies? Well, the text says that they're put to death from God by a plague, like immediately afterwards. Like they don't even live another 40 years, but they they die soon after. So uh, this is a super important chapter in the Bible. Numbers 14 is one that you should know. Um, and the reason uh, is that it teaches all of God's people when it comes time for you to obey God, there's a lot riding on your response. When the time comes, there's a lot of preparation. There's a lot of things that God shows you. But when God calls you to act and when God calls you to obey him, the right answer is, yes, God, I will do what you want me to do. And the whole point here is not that the Israelites were some big force. Even though 600,000 people was a lot of people, they could have inflicted a lot of damage the point of the book of Numbers is not that the Israelites were the strong nation that was capable in their, their military prowess, but it was that God was their strength and that obedience to God was essential for them to actually take the land. And without God on their side, they go up and try to take the land and they're quickly batted back. And thus starts the 40 years in the wilderness. So the last chapter we read this week in the book of Numbers is Numbers 15. That's the beginning of the wilderness wandering. So just remember and learn the lesson from the Israelites that you can start out really well. You can start out with a lot of advantages. You can start out with a lot of knowledge of God and what he's done. And you can fail in the moment of testing because you're not willing to trust God and you're not willing to obey him. This is a warning that all of us need to hear. It's not even it's not just how you start, it's how you finish. And that's a lesson we can learn from these Israelites. They did not want to do what God said when the time came. And that should be a warning for all of us because we all have sinful hearts. Our hearts all have cravings like these Israelites had cravings. But we need to trust in God in particular. We need to trust Jesus Christ that all of his words are true and that doing what God says is always better for us, even if it feels like it's not pragmatically the right decision to make because it always is the right decision to make. So that's the book of Numbers. We're going to read the first 15 chapters this week. Then we're turning to the Gospel of Mark. We're reading only four chapters in the Gospel of Mark, Mark 3, 4, and 5, and 6. And what we're going to find here is Mark is trying to show you again what is Jesus like, who is Jesus, what is he doing, it's all the basics, and a lot of the stuff you did read from the Gospel of Matthew, but there's a curious point I want you to notice, because in chapter 3, he continues to prove his authority. Chapter 4 sounds a lot like Matthew 13 with the parables of the kingdom. Then Mark 5 is pretty unique. There's a scene of Jesus healing this guy who has demons, and then healing uh, Jairus' daughter, and they thought he was going to heal him, and then all of a sudden, they raises him from the dead. But in between, there's this story of a woman who's bleeding, who touches Jesus' garments, and she's healed. And Jesus calls her out and tells her, step forward, like, show your faith in me. And, and these stories are kind of compacted, and they're put together, like one of my professors said, they're like Russian nesting dolls, right? You just, they, they get bigger, and then they're inside, there's another story. And inside, there's another story. And this is one of those examples. But it's interesting that in chapter 5, you see Jesus tell this guy who's been healed from demons, yeah, go tell everyone what the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. And then with Jairus, he says, don't tell anybody what happened here. So Jesus will oftentimes do that. And, you know, you could try to figure out all the different reasons why in each case he does that. But the main point is Mark is showing the reader who Jesus is. And sometimes not everyone in the story knows who Jesus is. And not everyone in the story gets it. So 
it's interesting as you read this gospel that you need to kind of do the work yourself. This is a difficult gospel to read because not everything is super clear on the surface. Like, what is Mark getting at? I think if you can continue to drive back to those main ideas that Mark wants his audience and he wants you as the reader to know who Jesus is and he wants you to consider his identity. I mean, even think about what the disciples say at the end of chapter four. They say, who is this then that even the wind and the seas obey him? Very important that we understand who he is and that we respond to him in faith because he's the one that proves he has power over death and he has power over sickness and he has power over demons and he has power to walk on water and he can feed multitudes of people with not enough food. That's the Jesus who's presented in scripture. That's the Jesus who walked on this earth and that's the Jesus who we need to believe in. And frankly, that should call you to action. Just like the Israelites should have obeyed, that calls you to action this week. So what is it for you this week that God calls you to do? How does he call you to obey him? Now, that can be a big statement when you think about big picture stuff like a job or a schooling choice or a choice in a spouse or do we want to have more kids or not, right? That's a big question. Like, what does God want us to do? But you can think about it even in the smaller sense that God has laid out for you a path in life and he's given you his word and he tells you, you're supposed to figure out what I want you to do. I mean, we see that in Romans 12. We're supposed to discern the will of God. Hebrews 5 says we're supposed to learn the difference between good and evil by constant practice. So I'd encourage you this week as you read and as you think about your life, think, what does God want me to do? What does obedience to him look like? And on the other hand, one scary thought is remember that disobedience really is rooted in a lack of trust in God and in his word. That's what we learn very clearly from the book of Numbers and those Israelites who make those big mistakes. But as a Christian who understands more of God's revelation, and even though you weren't there to witness the the Red Sea being parted and God speaking on Mount Sinai, even though you didn't see all that, you've seen something greater because you've read the scriptures and you've learned that Jesus is the Christ and he has come to live and die in your place. And he's your Lord, if you're a Christian, and he calls you to follow him and listen to him. So I encourage you this week as you read and as you consider all these things, make sure that this all drives you to obedience and to loving submission to what God has to say for you because he's your God who saved you. Just like he saved those Israelites, you've seen his signs and wonders, you've read his book, you know what he's done, you know who he is, you even have a better picture of who God is than they did in the wilderness, and God calls you to respond this week by obeying him. So as you read week number eight of the daily Bible reading, by the end of the week, you'll be done with 15% of the Bible, which should encourage you that you can get through God's word and you can learn so much through it. Even if this is your 10th time or 20th time reading through the Bible, I encourage you to continue to have that attitude of persistence that God is going to continue to teach you to be the person that he wants you to be following Christ and living for him. So thanks for joining us. We'll see you back next week for another daily Bible reading snapshot podcast. 